There is a legend in Miami that all Miami Dolphins fans likely know. Every year, when a football team starts to make their way toward that perfect season, the undefeated record, there is a slight tension and anxiety that they can't shake. Obviously, they would prefer the Dolphins to be winning, but it's more than that. Rather, they hope and pray that every team in the whole of professional football loses at least once. Dolphins fans were likely a little nervous this season. The Patriots were undefeated until earlier this month when they fell to the Baltimore Ravens. The San Francisco 49ers, however, were still going strong up until Monday. They had an eight-win streak under their belt, and they were headed into the second half of the season strong. Then on Monday, in a game against the Seattle Seahawks, they went into overtime with both teams holding 24 points. The Seahawks marched down the field and fired a field goal to beat the 49ers 27-24. The Seahawks fans cheered, but the Dolphins fans did too. When the time comes, and it always does, that a team breaks its undefeated season, it's said that Dolphins fans, especially the members of the 1972 team, pour themselves glasses of champagne and toast. It's not cruel nor a brag, it's a celebration. They don't have to hold their breath anymore. Their legacy remains. For the last century, every single football team has lost at least one game per season, except for one team in 1972. Since then, for the last 49 years, no one team has had a completely perfect season from opener to the championship. Many have come close, too close, but the fact still remains. The only truly undefeated team in all of football history is the 1972 Miami Dolphins. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the undefeated Dolphins, their no-name defense, and the complicated world surrounding it all. I know this is a little unorthodox, four decades after the fact, but these guys never got their White House visit after winning Super Bowl VII. Uh, I know some of them are a little harder to recognize these days. <laughs> You know, they don't have the afros or the mutton chops, the Fu Manchus. That's President Barack Obama in 2013. Standing behind him is a crowd of 30 or so old men. They're in green sport coats, row upon row of gentlemen who are still huge despite it being four decades since that perfect season. As the president speaks of their accolades, they laugh and smile and applaud. They look at each other with grins. They rest hands on each other's shoulders. The pride is evident, and the brotherhood shines through. It's infectious. They've seen 40 years together after that one unstoppable season, and receiving yet more honor and praise must have felt a little surreal after all this time. Not to mention that, back when they won the Super Bowl, it wasn't customary for the winners to take a trip to the White House. Regardless, they likely wouldn't have been invited. They beat the Washington Redskins to become the champs. And Richard Nixon, who was seated in the White House at the time, was a pretty big fan of them. He was likely not very happy. Mr. Chairman, delegates to this convention, my fellow Americans, four years ago, standing in this very place, 
I proudly accepted your nomination for President of the United States. Tonight, I again proudly accept your nomination for President of the United States. It's August of 1972. Richard Nixon has just accepted the nomination to be the Republican candidate as he seeks re-election to the presidency. He's standing in the Miami Beach Convention Center just a few miles from his Key Biscayne home off the coast of Miami. He's got a long few months ahead of him. The Watergate scandal is just ramping up. Two months before this, Bob Woodward's article naming members of the break-in is released in the Washington Post. Outside of the convention center tonight, 3,000 protesters have flooded the streets to demonstrate against Nixon's policy in Vietnam. He wanted to stay in, while others wanted to pull out. The cars that drove in the Republican delegates were surrounded by protesters. The streets of Miami were the battleground of one of the greatest debates our country has ever faced. Inside, that tension was hard to ignore, and you can see it on the president's face. In 1968, a riot swept the Democratic Convention in Chicago, and many feared it would happen again here in Miami. Nixon is putting on the grin and composure of a steadfast politician, but he's on the edge of his seat. It's all a look. He has no idea how this one's going to shake out for him. The same was true for the 1972 Miami Dolphins. Their preseason was off to a rocky start with two consecutive losses against the Lions and the Packers, respectively. Two days after Nixon's convention, the Dolphins beat the Falcons in Miami, but lost their next game to Nixon's favorite. They were 3-3 three and three for the preseason, but in the end, preseason doesn't really matter. Opening weekend is on the horizon, and that is where it really begins. The Dolphins had only officially been a member of the National Football League for two seasons so far. Before that, they had been a member of the American Football League, which merged to create the NFL that we know today in 1969. In their very first season with the NFL, they got a brand new coach, Don Shula. Shula was already a heavy hitter in the sport when he joined the team. He'd been a coach for a decade, and he had led his previous team, the Baltimore Colts, to a championship in 1968. When he joined the Dolphins in 1970, he was the new guy. The team had already known each other and had already gelled, but Don Shula was the odd man out, a Midwesterner who had somehow found his way to the miserable late summer heat of Miami. In his second year with the team, he led them to the Super Bowl, and he set his first record with the team, though not a very favorable one. The Dolphins in 1971 scored the lowest score by a team in the championship game. They scored one field goal, three points, to the Cowboys' 24. It was the last real game that they would lose for another 20 months. On September 15, 1972, seven men are indicted in the burglary of the Democratic National Headquarters at the center of the Watergate scandal. The five burglars who actually committed the crime were all formally accused, but so were G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt, two White House aides under Nixon. Up to this point, no one had been officially charged with anything, but now the charges of conspiracy and burglary were on the table. For a moment there, many were concerned that this was it, that these seven would face charges and no further discussion of their motives would move through the FBI. Why were men who worked for the president aiding in the burglary of the president's opponents? The next day, the concerns were put to rest. The FBI was still looking into this. It wasn't done just yet. Two days after the indictments came in, the Dolphins take to the field against the Kansas City Chiefs. 
That's actually Coach Shula a few years ago for the NFL-produced documentary series America's Game in their episode about the 1972 Dolphins. Shula had been coaching in South Florida for the last two years, but Kansas City showed up with outlandish heat and thick humidity. If the Florida heat had trained this team for the worst, Kansas City taught them to expect the unexpected. With two touchdowns in the first half and a field goal to cap it off in the third quarter, the Dolphins won their season opener 20-10. They were off to the races. The team succeeded not just because they had a legendary and great coach, but the team itself was also full of soon-to-be legends. Nearly all of them are now members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. One of their key defensive players was Nick Bonaconti, who would go on to be a three-time Dolphins MVP. Larry Zonka was a fullback who ended his career with over 8,000 rushing yards and 64 touchdowns. He was concussed in the late 60s and missed a handful of games, but after he recovered, he went four full seasons without missing a single game. And the leader of the team was, of course, their outstanding quarterback, Bob Greasy, spelt G-R-I-E-S-E. Greasy was one of those rare football players that spent his entire career with just one team. He was a Dolphin for 13 years, and when he came into the 1972 season, he had just been named the MVP for the previous season. Five games in, it was evident why. After the opener against the Chiefs, they went on to beat the Oilers, the Vikings, and the Jets. It's mid-October now, and they're playing the Chargers at home in Miami. Bob Greasy is taken down by two of the Chargers' defensive players, one of whom was one of the greatest defensemen in history, Deacon Jones. Greasy hits the ground hard. His leg is broken and his ankle is dislocated. There's no question here. Greasy is out. This isn't just a season-ending injury. This is the kind of breakage that could end a career. The season had been outstanding so far, a show of a great offense and a tough defense, but now the linchpin of the team had been pulled out just a month in, and in the opinion of many members of the team, it seemed like all this was over. Their replacement quarterback is journeyman Earl Morrill. He's 38, which is pretty old for the league. He's almost exclusively a backup quarterback, and he'd played for five other teams before he joined the Dolphins. He'd been in the NFL for 15 seasons, and nowhere had really made him a mainstay. He just kept moving. When Greasy went out, the veteran backup came in. He finished the game, and more importantly, he won. And he kept winning. Week after week, Morrow led the Dolphins to victory. He had an arm that fired rockets, and game after game, he connected with his receivers in the end zone. He beat the Buffalo Bills in a narrow 24-23 victory. He beat his former team, the Baltimore Colts, 23-0. And then they played the Buffalo Bills again on November 5th, 1972, just two weeks after their last meeting. The Bills and the Dolphins are in the same division and are still to this day notorious rivals. The last time that they met, the Bills almost beat them. The victory was only by one single point. If anyone ever came close to ending that perfect season, it was the Buffalo Bills. I'm sure I have some family members up in Buffalo who are hoping that they would. When they met up again in that first week of November, the Bills wanted to finish what they had started, but Morrill showed up with his same furious playmaking, and the Bills lost 30-16. Two days after that game, on Tuesday, November 7th, despite all of the controversy surrounding his presidency, Richard Nixon was re-elected in a landslide. 
He took 520 of the Electoral College votes and had one of the largest popular vote counts in electoral history. Looking at the spread from that year, the country is a sea of red. Save for a smattering of blue counties in Massachusetts, Texas, Minnesota, and a few more, Nixon took the country with essentially no contest. He was two years out from his resignation, but right now, he was on top of the world. Despite it all, Nixon had come out of it victorious. Facing similarly absurd odds, the Shula Dolphins never slowed down. On top of the moral-led offense, a group of nobody defensive players were becoming celebrities in their own right. The group was already fraught with unique characters. They ranged the aesthetic choices of early 70s style with bold haircuts and mustaches. They were rowdy and flavorful. A lot of them were still pretty young. They would play pranks on each other and on the staff. They were wild and excited. And that relationship, the bond, was bolstered on the field. It got stronger when the coach of the Cowboys, Tom Landry, was asked about the Dolphins' D-line. He called them a bunch of no-names. And it's true, these guys were not the star of the game, but the members of that newly penned no-name defense took it as a point of pride. They didn't need to be superstars. They didn't need to be the biggest names in the game. They were the no-name defense, and they just needed to win. The rest of the season was smooth sailing. They blew out the Patriots 52 to nothing. They narrowly beat the Jets 28 to 24, but then they took down the Cardinals in Monday Night Football, and Sunday after Sunday, they beat the Patriots again, then the Giants, then the Baltimore Colts again. At any point in these last few weeks, they could have slacked, they could have slowed down. Their placement in the playoffs was certain. There was no way they weren't gonna make it, but they did not let up. On Christmas Eve, at home in their stadium in Miami, they took on the Cleveland Browns in the divisional playoffs. Against a background of blue skies, Miami's Orange Bowl was the setting for the undefeated Dolphins to play Nick Scorich's surprising Cleveland Browns. Miami coach Don Shula might have been haunted by the specter of past games against these Browns. The only time Miami met Cleveland was Shula's first year, and the Browns shut him out 28-0. Cleveland held Miami scoreless until this play midway through the first quarter. In super slow motion, we can see number 49, rookie Charlie Babb, pour through untouched to block Don Cockroft's punt. Babb recovered the ball himself at the five, and then was escorted by an honor guard of Dolphins into the end zone for the first score of the game. The no-name defense explodes into the game, blocking a punt and scoring the first touchdown of the playoffs. I've watched a lot of football in the last few years, and I've never seen anything like that. The Dolphins drew first blood, and now they had the momentum that they needed to carry them through. Now as Cleveland coach Scorich watched with impending doom, Cleveland put together a final effort and drove deep into Dolphin territory with less than a minute remaining. But Miami sealed the win with their fifth interception of a Mike Phipps pass. Linebacker Doug Swift, second of the afternoon. Five interceptions, 20 to 14. Their next game would be a week later on New Year's Eve for the AFC Championship. It would be the last game of 1972. It had been a long year. The Vietnam War was still claiming lives. Nixon didn't want to pull back, but all of his opponents were insistent on it. In the last few days of the year, in response to a failed peace treaty, Nixon ordered the bombing of Hanoi. 
the bombings lasted from December 18th to the 29th. Within three weeks, in January of 1973, all U.S. combat was suspended. Just days after the bombing, on New Year's Eve, the Dolphins played against the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is the Steelers right at the beginning of their finest era. They've got their star quarterback, Terry Bradshaw, and legendary running back and my personal favorite football player, Franco Harris, who earlier in the season had completed the most famous football play of all time, the Immaculate Reception. Sidebar, if you have not seen the Immaculate Reception, you really should. Just Google it, it's unbelievable. Needless to say, these two teams were titans. With a fumble leading to the Steelers getting the first touchdown of the game, the odds were uncertain. Earl Morrill, the quarterback, was on his last leg. He just didn't have it in him anymore. At halftime, Coach Shula knew his quarterback was done. Luckily, they had a backup in the form of their original starter. Bob Greasy, who had broken his leg just two months ago on the field, was ready to go. He took to the game and he won the AFC Championship. That original team was now reunited and better than ever. They had learned from so much in the last season and were ready to take on the Super Bowl. In sports, it's all about momentum. You see it in hockey and in baseball. When the team gets into the groove, when they find their speed, their rhythm, they run with it. They click into place and they make the moves necessary to keep going until no one could stop them. The Redskins never stood a chance. On January 14, 1973, the Dolphins won the Super Bowl 14-7. They were officially the first and only undefeated team in NFL history. Six days later, Richard Nixon was sworn in for his second term. Nobody can argue with this record. Nobody uh, can argue with what uh, all of you have gone on to do uh, after you hung up uh, the shoulder beds uh, for the last time. You know, players from this team have gone on to become a minister, a mayor, a doctor, a state senator, a high school counselor, many successful businessmen. Uh, you know, Nick uh, Bonacani uh, helped found the world's most comprehensive spinal cord research center. Uh, some have dabbled in acting. Uh, <laughs> I hear somebody serves up pretty good T-bone as well. So uh, uh, th th these are all uh, men of, of accomplishment and character, uh, and it showed on the field and off the field as well. We want to congratulate all of them, uh, and we want to make sure that they're remembered uh, for not only the history that... Uh, sports fans will always remember, but also for uh, all the countless contributions that they've made in their community as well. When protesters took to the streets against Richard Nixon in August of 1972 in Miami Beach, there was a palpable fear. It was the peak of one of the most complicated and divisive moments in American political history. Since 1968, the country had been at a fever pitch, and the Watergate scandal was only making things worse. Nixon was either deeply hated or fiercely defended, and life must have been scary for Americans. Conflict was waiting around every corner, and an uncertain future hung heavy in the air. During it all, the Miami Dolphins were making history. In that one city, in one state in the country, nothing had ever been more sweet. Their team was winning, and winning big, and changing the game. 
Hell, even people who weren't fans of the Dolphins were likely stunned by the remarkable athleticism that these men were exhibiting. They weren't just a distraction, they were hope. That it didn't all have to be like this. That everything didn't have to feel like the end of the world. Sometimes, for just a few hours, every week, you could just try and turn off the noise and focus on something that you just love. Not everyone has that privilege, but if you do, finding that thing, that excitement, that thrill, is what can make us get through the terrible, hard, difficult, impossible times. We all deserve to have a little bit of that perfect season. We all deserve to feel a little bit like the 1972 Dolphins. One more thing before I go. This year is the 100th anniversary of professional football. To count down, the NFL has been remembering the greatest moments in their history. On Friday, they named the greatest football teams of all time, and the number one team? I think you can guess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is the penultimate episode of the second season. Next week is the finale. I told you we were going to talk about taxidermy this week, but due to a really exciting schedule change, it's going to be happening next week. We're going to talk about taxidermy, and I'll be speaking with the New York Times bestselling author Kristen Arnett, whose book Mostly Dead Things is about taxidermy, family, and the ever-present wilderness in Florida. A few programming updates. The episode after the finale, two weeks from today, will be an epilogue, a review of the stories in season two, a little bit about the things we learned, and a few updates on the stories. Then, a week after that, I'll be starting a new short-form series while season three is in production. It's called Floridians. I'll be speaking with a few fascinating Floridians from the previous season and going a little more in depth on their expertise and the fascinating, important work that they use to make Florida life a little better. Then, in January, season three. More on that soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about the show. I read all of your reviews, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say. Your reviews really help the show grow. More people see it when it has more reviews. Not to mention the fact that it helps me know what you like about the show, so it shapes it a little bit more every single time. You can also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode? I'm sure you know someone who's a huge Dolphins fan and would love to spend a little time remembering this spectacular moment in their history, in our history. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. I'm always looking for more, especially as season three goes into production. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. You can also find the links to the additional audio used in this episode in the description below as well. I'll be back next Monday with the final episode of Season 2. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Bills, go Steelers.
Have a good week.